Hi, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt. Today, we are talking with two scholars who work in the nexus between nuclear politics, post-colonial theory, and feminist theory. Catherine Eshley teaches in the politics and IR and gender studies programs at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. Her research explores feminist debates and dynamics in the context of broader social movement politics with reference to scholarship in IR, political theory, and sociology. She has co-written two books and several articles on the global justice movement. More recently, she has published on the gendered politics of protest camps, on debates within feminism about co-optation and solidarity, and on feminism, nuclear policy, and anti-nuclear politics. She was co-editor of the International Feminist Journal of Politics from 2006 to 2011, and more recently has served as program co-chair of the Feminist Theory and Gender Studies section of the International Studies Association. Shine Choi teaches political theory and international relations at Massey University in New Zealand. Her research has focused on how an illiberal state like North Korea creates the international as a space of politics. Other research areas include non-Western IR theorizing, intercultural relations, visuality and aesthetics, post-colonial feminist theory, and critical creative methods. She co-edits the book series, Creative Interventions in Global Politics with Roman and Littlefield, and serves as an associate editor for the International Feminist Journal of Politics. Next year, she'll join the editor-in-chief team of the journal for a four-year term. We're really looking forward to the conversation and we hope you'll really enjoy it. Great, so I don't know if either of you um, has a preference to start, um, but I was wondering if both of you could just tell us a little bit about your work um, in the context of like nuclear and critical theories. I'll let Catherine start. <laughs> Thank you, Shine. <laughs> well, I always feel I'm somewhat of an interloper in, in terms of uh, studying nuclear politics in IR. Um, I, I come from, well, my PhD is in um, social and political thought, actually, um, and looked at the, was a theoretical study of the role of social movements. Um, in democracy. <laughs> so yes, I've had an interesting journey. I'm, I, my perennial interest is in feminism as a form of social movement politics. And I come from a family background, actually, where my parents were very active anti-nuclear activists in the 1980s. Um, and that shaped my uh, academic career in ways I've only sort of really recently realized quite, quite how deeply that has impacted, you know, what I've done. I've clearly been very preoccupied with this kind of politics that was very, um, uh, you know, significant in my childhood years. Um, but then sort of intellectually, I guess what's happened is that I've, um, yeah, I, I then, um, I've worked for a long time on the global justice movement. And then when I came out of that project, um, I, I wanted to work on the on anti-nuclear uh, activism, basically, um, partly through serendipity, because uh, there was a, a big activist event organized in my neighborhood. Um, so I live in Glasgow and all of the nuclear weapons of the UK are stored at Faslane Nuclear Base just outside Glasgow. 
And there was uh, FASLANE 365 was a year of activism that was organized um, whereby there was uh, an attempt to shut down the base every single day for a year. And there was an academic blockade as part of this in which I took part and found it an extremely powerful experience. So I had a pre-existing personal interest in anti-nuclear politics that at that moment became transformed also into something I wanted to, to work on and to bring my personal political interest together with my um, uh, you know, my academic interests. So uh, we then helped to organize a second blockade at which uh, Claire Duncanson and I wrote a paper on uh, critical of British nuclear policy from a feminist perspective. And I've been trying to work on the topic ever since in different ways. Um, Claire and I tried to organize um, a special issue and several panels following on from our paper together. And so that was in about 2007, 2008. And basically there wasn't much interest at all. Um, people then, uh, feminists in international relations were not really talking about nuclear weapons or about anti-nuclear activism, um, not in the mainstream of feminist IR anyway. Um, so I kind of was doing other things as well and kept coming back to it. And I've, I've been more and more convinced that it's uh, a really important topic and that there is a significant research agenda here for feminist scholars in, in the field of IR in which I kind of find myself uncomfortably at home. Um, and uh, yes, and then Shine and I got together around the Honolulu uh, International Studies Association conference where we tried to organize a, a workshop uh, bringing together feminist and post-colonial approaches. So my work has, has moved to, to from, from feminist starting point to try and encompass a more feminist post-colonial perspective. Go on, Shine, you're next. Sorry, I was just lost in your narrative. Um, it's really interesting. And sort of thinking about how different our sort of meeting point, Catherine, um, is on this topic. Um, and, and, and also what explains that difference? Because I'm sort of thinking in part, I come into not just the study of Korea and North Korea um, through the academic journey, my academic journey as a student in the study of international relations where if you are from a non-Western context, already the assumption is that you're going to study about the world that you come from, right? So already there's a hierarchy, a shaping of your, the kind of questions that you ask about the world, um, which is interesting because people enter the field of IR or international studies. I mean, for me and my generation at least, um, because you have questions about the world, right? You have questions about the world that feel like it extends beyond the local or your own history. And what you want to do is better understand that structure. But the moment you enter the academic space of IR and the international, it has a way of taking you back home, which I used to think in a very negative, like resistive way. I'm just like, why do I have to study this? Or why, you know, like always, always starting with that point to then actually study it in a way 
that answers the kind of questions that I have. But increasingly in, in my uh, current research and collaborations, it's been an issue of, yeah, so how do I create the home that I never had, right? So in relation to Korea um, and also in relation to North Korea as someone who is coming from a South Korean um, background, but as a South Korean who grew up in the Philippines, so always had a very deferred diasporic relationship with quote unquote, the homeland. Um, but while listening to Catherine, I was also thinking, actually, my relation to feminism is quite academic as well, right? In the sense that I learned about feminist, I became a feminist in more explicit and reflective way, rather than in just my uh, what I hate this world. <laughs> why are the men so untrustworthy? Or what, like the Korean Ajoshi, Bridget, if you know, like Ajoshi is like the middle class, like middle aged men in Korea. Like I just had this relationship with Ajoshis where I cannot talk to them because they constantly just put you in your place. So, my, so while I was aware of those power dynamics that had, you know, made me create a very separate private world from the social public world. It wasn't until I actually started studying and reading feminist work as a student that has given me the language. So my, my um, I didn't read feminist work until my master's thesis. Um, I did my undergraduate uh, at Wellesley College, which is a women's college. So one would think that I would have encountered feminist work as feminist work much earlier, but as an international student at Wellesley College, it, majoring in political science and philosophy, I never, as part of my undergraduate degree in a women's college, taking a women's studies course was not part of the requirement. Um, and so there was a way for me to avoid that. And in fact, it's almost like as an undergraduate, as a student, really, you almost know where the power base is, right? So like, I knew that women's, I knew that there was this program of like, you know, African American, African studies, um, women's studies in these sort of parts of the campus and as the curriculum, but I myself, I mean, physically they were either in the basement or in the attic. And while the political science departments, the philosophy departments were in regular spaces of, you know, um, the big social science building that was newly renovated and the more archaic, beautiful sort of uh, level in, in other part of the campus, which was the philosophy. So. Uh, and within those departments, we didn't have, or feminism or feminist as a, an intellectual movement where it was not presented as such. So as an undergraduate, I think I found a way, I encountered feminist work. So Chen Minha is a very important theorist in my own work, which I revisited when I tried to figure out what is my relationship with critical theory. Um, and I encountered her work as an undergraduate taking an elective anthropology ethnography methods class. So like quite sort of um, 
almost kind of by accident. You, I had learned, I was shaped by Audre Lorde's cons, you know, words, I was shaped by these texts, but they were always in sort of the generalized academic and learning space where I did not quite register what it means to study feminist work, which I think accompanies feminist politics until actually I did my PhD in the UK, but, uh, but my first real sort of naive, naive but real encounter was when I was doing my master's thesis in South Korea, where my professor in IR said, oh, there is no feminist approach to studying North Korea. Why don't you write your master's thesis about it? Which is, um, I can't, I don't know whether I can swear in this podcast, but which is not true, which is not true. It's, it's that he did not know. And he, does, I mean, so as the program in, in Seoul National University, International Studies Master's program, they didn't have a gender component at all, never mind feminist, which I think is something we also have to talk about the relationship between gender and feminist IR. But yeah, like, and so that was when I started going to the library and reading, you know, Christian Sylvester's work. Um, and discovering a whole sort of debate. So I guess the other thing is learning about feminist IR, feminist thought through the debates that feminist IR was having. And so that was my first entry. And then thinking about how those debates then link up to your your own questions about feminism, um, which is the other sort of step one has to take. I mean, for me anyway, as I think about, as I thought about what is my relationship to these debates and why do I feel also in part alienated about these debates that were happening um, through the discipline that was introducing me to feminist political thought, but in a way that didn't really immediately make sense. And I had to do a lot of interpretive work to insert myself. And so, yeah, so Catherine, it's very different. So, and then thinking about what that means, right, in terms of when we come together to ask questions specifically about nuclear politics, because my relationship to that is through the study of Korea. So it's, it's always been a, a larger political question. That's so interesting to hear that shine because um, perhaps what um, Gabrielle and Bridget might need to know is that shine and I have never actually met in person because our working relationship almost entirely coincides with the pandemic or I suppose the a few months before, a year before when we were trying to work on our workshop for Honolulu. So um, yeah, we have an entirely online and we've never had that, you know, let's go to the bar and just catch up and find out which is kind of what oils the wheels of academic exchange often is that informal you know stuff in the corridor and in the cafes and all that kind of thing like shine and i've never had these conversations really so we should be grateful to you for allowing us to have these but yet shine i think what you've just said and how i started as well does explain I think why we've worked well together, actually, why, but certainly why we're coming from very different perspectives and have different relationships to feminism, to feminist IR, to post-colonial theory, you know, our, our personal situation, our situatedness really does shape our encounter with that work and with each other as well. 
Your stories are both so interesting um, and you both sort of describe these um, and I don't know if non-traditional is the right word, but um, for lack of a better word, these non-traditional paths that you all have had um, to get to where you study today. Um, but you both still came to this to study this nexus between feminism and post-colonial theory um, and nuclear politics. And um, from where you are right now, I'm wondering what contributions do you think that these critical approaches to nuclear politics um, make? To, to the literature and to nuclear policy making. Hmm. Catherine, do you want to start or do you want me to start? You can start this time, Shine. <laughs> That's what I thought, I was like. <laughs> um, I guess it asked, I mean, critical in the sense of critical theory that um, is closely tied to interrogating the, you know, one's own politics, I guess is how I would sort of define critical theory because there were, there would be critical theoretical traditions um, in feminism and post-colonial and beyond that don't necessarily make, ask deeper questions about how power works um, and the separation between the, the world of words and the world of the lived reality as theorists that I think in many ways has a way of keeping us within, you know, what Agatha Angelou and Ling calls the colonial house of IR, um, the colonial house of academia, right? Um, so I think for me, when you ask these more fundamental questions about power and politics, it means that the, the, the critical theory questions that we ask are different from the disciplinary questions that we ask, right? So it makes the, the discipline, mean, it, it positions you almost as an outsider insider of the discipline of international relations and political science. Um, and so the kind of questions you ask are just fundamentally uh, different because your dialogue partners are different. So your dialogue partners shift from the dialogue partners of the existing boundaries of the discipline, whether that's the policymakers um, or, or the social world that you belong to. Um, but it's almost the starting point here is to feel out the boundaries of the existing dialogue partners of the discipline and then thinking about, well, who are the more authentic or real dialogue partners that you need to ask the kind of questions that you need to ask that the discipline is, is actively working against. So I think that's the other thing that um, for me is important when we ask questions about nuclear politics, that it, um, that when we start with questions and topics um, that are relevant when we look at nuclear politics, we have already a way of starting with um, the assumption that nuclear, the global nuclear politics is really, is about disarmament and denuclearization and the international, how to strengthen the international um, norms regime um, or how do we, 
and also how do and then how do we get a state like North Korea to um, be a better political actor? Um, and how do we get a state like North Korea to denuclearize? So those are the kind of assumptions that become, I mean, and so the kind of questions you ask are sort of with these assumptions. Um, but I guess for me, my questions about nuclear politics and North, North Korean nuclear state um, begins from a position where, well, how does a state like North Korea become a problem? Um, and how does the nuclear issue, why is that the nuclear issue has a way of creating the North Korean state as a problem and as a security problem? And how is that linked to how North Korea is also seen as a human rights problem, right? Or as um, a Korean unification problem or a problem of the patriarchal, patriarchal state. Um, so I guess my questions about North Korea has always been about how the way in which North Korea becomes a problem tells us a lot about the international. So it tells us a lot about the structure, the desires, the histories of the international, that the discipline, starting from the disciplinary questions and starting points do not make visible. And a step further, not only does it not make it visible, it is designed to make the structures not visible. There's a lot of labor involved in that. Um, and you can find that labor in all sorts of corridors and classrooms and text and behind closed door peer reviews process, or there's, there's so many ways that this happens. And so my questions are always about, okay, be alert, being always thinking um, critically to make those moments visible and to act in a way that you're not shaped by those moments, um, which always are moments of resistance, but also a moments where you don't want your resistance to shape also your politics or what you do to create a more um, just way of, of addressing issues of human suffering and power domination, exclusion, right? So these are larger languages we can use to better understand the problem of human rights and security and nuclear state. But Catherine. Oh, wow, Shine, I, I turned my camera back on and it seems to be working okay, but I wanted you to see, I was frantically nodding along <laughs> with you speaking and realized that nobody could see me doing that because you put that so eloquently you know your starting point is that the kind of very parameters and foundations of mainstream debates about global nuclear politics are are set in a way that doesn't even allow us to ask the kinds of questions that we want to ask or to to obscure the operations I suppose of structural parallelations discursive parallelations cultural formations that actually um, from a feminist and from a post-colonial point of view are actually doing the work in upholding the nuclear status quo and, and preventing change. So, um, I mean, I, I would come at that for, again, as you'd expect from a slightly different angle, although I agree with the, very much agree with the fundamental point. 
I, I was thinking about the fact that my entry point into thinking about nuclear politics is through feminist anti-nuclear activism. Mm. Through participating in it myself, I guess, and through uh, and, and from experiencing it right from, you know, in my family context, but also then at uh, part of the Faslane 365 action. Um, but also because I, I, because I was familiar with that kind of 1980s milieu and um, of feminist anti-nuclear activism, at least uh, at a general level. And then I kind of went away and read about it and became more interested in it. I was really, it's never been for me that I want, uh, that I think feminist IR needs to pay more attention to nuclear politics although i think it does my point is that feminists in different contexts and different kinds of feminists have long been paying attention to this and we need to actually see what people are already doing so uh, are doing and saying and how they're critiquing this world order it's about seeing activists as um themselves contributing to our theoretical uh, languages, to use Shine's word, um, rather than necessarily just positioning them as an object of study. You know, I, I wanted to learn from the feminist anti-nuclear activists that I've, I've studied both in the Cold War period and, and since. I think they have much to say, actually, about the world order more generally and the kind of violences that lead, that have, uh, lead to nuclear technologies. Um, you know, so it, feminist IR scholars don't have to make this stuff up. It's not new. It's it's a long-standing. There are many long-standing critical discourses around nuclear weapons that are very highly developed, actually, and quite sophisticated, and to which we should pay more attention. Um, so, yeah, from a, a feminist perspective as well, it's about um, I guess this more overlaps more with what Shine was saying. Um, thinking about um, gendered power relations and gendered discourses and how those shape the global nuclear order. Um, and I'm increasingly interested in how that intersects with and works through colonial and neo-colonial power relations and discourses. Um, and you can't separate those two things out. Um, yeah, so it's approaching global nuclear politics by um, through that lens. And I think that it, it fundamentally for me starts from a feminist anti-militarist perspective, which is critical of the global nuclear order. Perhaps that's something as well, which should be said. I think you both make such interesting points and I really love how you come at it from two really different perspectives, but have a lot of the same insights about this. I think it says a lot about the, um, maybe broad nature of feminism and post-colonialism that you can come from a lot of different places, but meet in the middle and agree on some key things. Um, but what I was, I was curious about is, you know, all of these are very theoretical issues, which of course for us as inside the academy are fine, but bringing that to nuclear policymaking, are there ways in which that you think, you know, from an activist standpoint or from a more um, unspoken power structure standpoint that we can bring these approaches into how we, not only talk about nuclear weapons on an academic perspective, but from a policy perspective and bring these perspectives to places of power. 
I think I think it's already happening. We d we don't need to do that. It's um, feminist activists and um, and their allies and queer activists and uh, indigenous activists. Uh, uh, I've been hugely influential in the recent you know treaty and prohibition of nuclear weapons nuclear ban um through mobilizing a lot of these um critiques of nuclear weapons which we're articulating in the academy it's it's i suppose that's again what i'm saying about it's the same you know we need to make those connections rather than seeing as we develop the theories and then um people out there may be able to apply them in their policy making it's 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 not doesn't work quite like that this is a, a discourse that a theoretical language that actually is developed in activist and campaigning circles for me anyway a uh, kind of feminist anti-nuclear critique developed outside the academy and has then come into the academy and been blocked in in the academy in lots of ways actually but is while it was being almost entirely ignored in feminist ir um the this international campaign through the um uh humanitarian initiative and then the campaign for the nuclear ban um feminists had an unprecedented um near unprecedented uh influence on that um you need to uh, everyone should read ray Aitchison's book um banning the bomb which is just out and which details really in incredible <laughs> the nitty-gritty of who spoke to who and um where they got these ideas from and really shows i think very clearly the very long journey of feminist anti-nuclear uh, campaigning and other forms of anti-nuclear campaigning through these institutions you know against outside against through these institutions and their determination to uh, make alliances with state actors to push against the nuclear status quo particularly in what was seen as the failures of the um, non-proliferation treaty so it's we don't need to articulate it in policy friendly terms it already has been articulated in that way. Um, for example, you know, in the humanitarian initiative, uh, the feminist arguments about the differential impact of ionizing radiation on male and female bodies, that's that's all over that discourse. You can see it in, uh, there's a Irish government policy statement, which very clearly shows that they've been reading <laughs> that feminist work or listening to feminist uh, campaigners. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the long, long struggles of indigenous folks in many different contexts in Australia, across the Pacific islands to um, raise awareness of the very long-term impacts of nuclear, so-called nuclear testing, you know, the use of nuclear weapons and the decimation of lives, livelihoods and, 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 homes and places um that there's some perhaps more limited but some recognition of that as well so i think the um yeah the the policy relevance of what may seem quite abstract debates about you know gendered symbolism and nuclear weapons it's it's already quite widely accepted uh in policy domains mm. yeah and just adding to that um, point about 
you know, maybe thinking a bit more critically about the relationship between policy and um, theory, right? So how does that relationship actually in real life work? Um, that should uh, make us um, think a bit more about, uh, you know, what our sort of academic objectives should be. Um, the other way to think about it is, you know, how it's almost like, you know, to have the policy impact that we want to have as academics um, and theorists, the answer really is, firstly, it's already happening, but also that we have to think a little bit about how do we live better feminist lives day in and day out, right? So how do we, um, you know, how do we, how do we exercise feminist politics um, in our own lives where we are using the theories and the words, the, wor the world of words that we are inhabiting and how do we make, how, how do we bring it into the everyday in whatever context uh, in which we're operating. So I think um, that for me has been important because in particular thinking about um, uh, positionality in all of this, because the point of you know, us being in, in conversation with feminist policymakers or feminist activists or with other feminists from different backgrounds on this issue of nuclear politics isn't to come to a consensus about how do we solve the problem of nuclear politics because that consensus will never arise. And actually that moment of consensus oftentimes is a moment of domination and hierarchy. So it's already a moment where the existing structures, the non-feminist, anti-feminist structures have a way of structuring what is realistic, what is possible, what is the point of coming together, right? So I think for me in any kind of, whether it's the workshop context or in being in conversation with um, other academics who are working on the Korean issue, to me, it's always a moment of make that, making sure that I don't um, feel the pressure or I don't respond necessarily to the pressures of needing to be reasonable. Um, and so thinking a little bit more about the value of remaining unreasonable precisely with a much specific and historicized understanding of who's not in the room. So thinking a little bit about the, the kind of conversations that can happen in policy space and the role of theories and academics really is, you know, I do a lot of, um, and people find it strange, but I do a lot of track to diplomacy. Um, I, I, I'm currently working in New Zealand. Um, before this, I was in University of Mississippi as a Korea Foundation research, um, a visiting professor and, a lot of my way of making my way in the academic professional world has been through the fact that the South Korean state, um, its public, pu public diplomacy arm is quite alive and well, it's, it's necessary to kind of, for the state to punch above its weight, right? Um, and so the area studies people, Korean studies people, people like me, um, you're always working with and within that sphere, it, it, uh, critically, some of us more critically than others, but in terms of where the funding comes from, where the career 
trajectories are. Um, you're always, you know, not a few, you're not, you're, you're very, if you're not direct, if you're not aware of it, you know, directly, you're only a few steps away, right? So it always brings you back. Um, and so with that work, you know, I, I was involved in sort of providing lectures to the diplomatic corps of South Korea. I participate in building Korean studies program um, that is really playing interstate politics, but in the public academic realm. Um, and then in my current um, position here at Massey University in New Zealand, I've done track two diplomacy um, in point 1.5, they call it um, diplomacy, where basically it is a discursive space that is structured by policy, state is structured by state, right, interest, and your position and your ability to speak um, and, and to communicate so that so the discursive space being a communicative space is structured by the assumption that you are there as a good citizen um, of the state that has brought you into that discursive space. And so for me, you know, working in that space um, on ASEAN, on the inter-Korean um, relation issue in relation, uh, or even sometimes I get asked to participate in roundtables where um, whenever there's a Northeast Asian context, we have a Japanese um, ambassador coming through, then we have a discussion about New Zealand interests and relations between Japan, right? So, and so for me in these contexts, it's always about, you know, how do we, how do I work in this space where, where the consensus and good feelings are already predetermining the very possibility of, of you know, being um, a person in the room that matters, right? And then thinking about how to, in that discursive space of good feeling, um, how do you not create a negative feeling that makes them shut down, but how do you create a negative feeling that kind of feels like a provocation that they might then go on um, to have a more open encounter and relation, not so much on the topic because the topic itself and the decisions and policy decisions will not shift with academics saying you are wrong or that's unethical, right? I almost like that activist you know, relationship, like you don't change the topic position, you change their relationship with the world. Right. So for me, it's always about thinking, how do I work and be in relation with these people who are shaped by their different personal histories, just like my personal history. Right. So I'm no better than them. It's just that I had have, have a I've had this rare opportunity to to make my way in the world in a way that has been linked to my personal emancipatory journey, right? And not everyone has that need or ability to feel that need or has the uh, has had the structures that um, have given them the privilege to, you know, you know, so I just think people's positionality and backgrounds are so complex. And so I think it's important to, to keep those things open. Um, even when it's about, you know, that person is from a very privileged background, therefore X, Y, and Z, I try to make sure that, you know, there's a 
sadness and tragedy in that as well, right? Like, um, so I think for me, it's really about not changing people's minds about the topic of security, um, trade, um, landmine, you know, a lot of these ethical issues. Um, I think the activists do it so much better and they're better positioned to do that. And our, my, relation, my role there is to um, support and be in solidarity with those people, right? And those line of thinking and activism. And at the same time, so it's not an either or, but at the same time, also think about how do you reshape people's way of mode of living in the world, right? How do I reshape, how, how do I contribute to people staying more open in their daily interactions in a way that isn't preachy or, you know, just so that they remain open to learning from the different you know, encounters that they have, or even encounters they might not have, like just keeping that possibility open. So I think that actually also comes from critical thinking, right? So thinking the traditions of, there has to be a way in which we transgress and transcend the very um, way in which our thinking is predetermined by our own experiences. There must be another way right and and I and I think that way of thinking about critical thinking for me um yes you can stay within the western tradition but a lot of for me anyway it's the meeting of the non-western and western tradition of critical thinking that gives us the everyday tools um to put in a, put it in action because you know the non-western and again this is a very problematic category um you know, traditions of philosophy and theorizing have a different relationship with the way in which the Western tradition of theorizing have emerged. Um, and I think feminism as a, you know, as a sort of movement has a way of, of operating as a boundary space of these intercultural relations um, and, and makes visible, right, uh, the fact that um, the world that we live is a very intercultural one. Um, yeah. Sorry, we have a way of both Karen and I um, answering in very long-winded ways. No, don't apologize. It's so interesting. I'm just, I'm just processing. <laughs> so it's wonderful. And I have so many questions that I've written down throughout both of you speaking. I'm just, I'm really trying to decide. Um, which ones to ask. Um, Shine, what you were just saying reminded me of an experience I had um, when I was with um, the NARIC program at um, KAIST for the past um, month. And there was one lecture um, we had by a, a very you know, prominent, dominant nuclear scholar at a big Ivy League institution in the United States. And I asked him, um, well, what about critical perspectives such as like post-colonial perspectives or feminist perspectives on nuclear issues? Um, where do, like, how do those come into play um, when you were writing about nuclear policy or um, reading the literature? And he just kind of looked at me and said, well, they don't. And I was like, I was just so kind of 
taken aback, but hearing um, your experience with, it seems like you approach in your track two diplomacy, um, you approach this almost with a sort of empathy and you saying, like even these privileged people, it's, it's almost a tragedy that, you know, they haven't had the experiences and the perspectives that you are bringing to the table that has just really like um, stuck in my head. And so I'm wondering, I guess, when you come against these people that are um, pretty firm in their belief that like nuclear politics is best understood through realism and power um, and things like that. Where have you seen openings for talking to people of that mindset um, and incorporating um, feminist or post-colonial thought in terms of making like real tangible gains for, um, or gains that activists, I guess, would consider tangible? Mm. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. <clears throat> because firstly, you know, what happens is, you know, in those spaces, for me anyway, is, you know, my biography always enters, right? So she is, she does fem feminist post-colonial research, um, X, Y, and Z on North Korea, blah, blah, blah. So in, even when I don't myself mention feminist and post-colonial theory, it's already sort of structuring the discursive space. Um, and so I think it's different, for example, if I was in that space as a student, for example, right, asking that question, because that, you know, it's almost like if there isn't another visible feminist scholar of, of his standing or as a counterpart that is structuring that public discursive space that is indicative of what kind of space that is. So that's a space that might be anti-feminist, right, um, or might be of space that is structured by U.S. imperialism, right? So, the, so that post-colonial and colonial questions about um, nuclear politics is not even part of their vocabulary, right? So what do you need to do there? What do I need to do there? And what you need to do there would be different, uh, but also what kind of space that is also would require a different way of being in that space, right? It's a different kind of possibility and impossibility. Um, but, you know, thinking for me when I, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of interactions with, with that, that type of uh, American professors who work on Korea. Um, and also a lot of Korean American professors um, who work on Korea um, and nuclear politics like David Kong and Victor Cha or, you know, Korean Americans who have really shaped um, the issue of North Korea in a way that has not made visible um, what is structuring, quote unquote, the realist approach um, or legitimizing the realist approach um, when it comes to Korean Peninsula. And the way, and that happens because realism has a way of of almost like putting in a box ethical questions or ethical questions become secondary or optional or um, uh, amoral. <laughs> it does, in, in the world of realism, ethics can be put in this weird category of, of 
A. It's neither non or ethical, right? So um, it, that has a way of, I mean, so when it comes to the issue of, of Korea and North Korea's nuclear politics, it has a way of making um, issues of what is creating the North Korean, what is fueling the North Korean nuclear politics um, invisible, right? So it makes invisible the fact that in some ways for North Korea and, and both Koreas, um, the Korean War is ongoing, very much ongoing, right? And so, for example, what if, you know, what if the, the, the possible policy options on the case of Korea is the removal of, of the US troops from the South Korean um, base, right? Like the, the US bases um, in the South Korean part of Korea. Like what if that was part of the policy option to think about what, you know, how do we solve the problem of the North Korean nuclear threat, right? Um, what if we are able to halt the military um, annual military exercise that happens between ROK and the US. What if we just do this weird experiment of halting this exercise, which met, supposedly is just an exercise, is a war theater exercise. So it seems like we could halt that training for a certain period and see what happens to the security dynamics on the peninsula or in the region. Why do we not allow that experimentation? Who doesn't allow that experimentation, right? And also, how do we also, if, even if we don't take into, take seriously North Korean position, which is a position where they see all these exercises and practices of removing their sovereign head, right? That happens annually. It's part of the, the, industri the, the institutional infrastructure. Of the, of the US military in operation in Northeast Asia. What if, even if we don't believe the North Korean state's perception that that is a form of conducting war. The, the Korean war has not stopped or is not in ceasefire. It's not, it's, it's always been ongoing in, in a just much more, much less direct way. Just like US interest um, in Korea and US sort of policy, foreign policy has in, in post-Cold War context becoming increasingly indirect, right? It's always liberalism aid. It's always a way of, of infiltrating um, sort of the post-colonial sovereign, you know, spaces in a way that is almost like a military occupation um, to shape the politics of that region and that location. What if, even if we didn't take that seriously, right? That perception seriously, we could still say, if that's how they perceive all these, you know, existing policy and military dynamics. Um, and we think we're just, they're simply stating that as, to manipulate and make things work out in a way that is in their favor. I think there are ways in which we could be much more experimental in the policy space. And the fact that this level of experimentation doesn't happen tells us something about how maybe ideas in policy spaces are not just about ideas. Like words mean something else. Right. Um, 
and so this is where our, our role as theorists coming right because we're paying attention to to the effects of words and the particular choice of words um and and so going back to Bridget your your encounter you know I would be you know I'll be like well you know what is your understanding of um, U.S. foreign policy, like to the professor, like, do you, have you heard of the term imperialism? Like, how do you really, how would you think about that? Rather than staying within the realist logic, because once we say, oh, you are realist, therefore those things that you are thinking are legitimate, has a way of um, not getting the person to, to deal with the actual reality, the actual history, right, of of US occupation, right? Um, and Korea being part of that um, US occupation network. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to um, reject the, the hold of this, um, or, or, or reject realist scholarships claim to realism, um, you know, to not go along with that and to try and question the terms in which those claims are made. And also more recently, um, what I've become um, perhaps more familiar with than I ever wanted to is this, uh, in recent decades, the turn in IR, IR scholarship and IR theorizing to kind of mid-level pragmatic problem-solving theory, which is ostensibly not uh, realist or liberal. It's not supposed to have a larger ideological um, framework, which it adheres to. It's meant to be generating mid-level hypotheses in a social scientific neutral way without any kind of ideological baggage. But of course, that too only allows certain kinds of questions to be asked and uh, has to bracket because it has a very narrow positivist kind of approach to, to IR inquiry, has to bracket most of the messy um, everyday realities of the kind that Shine is talking about as outside the study. So, um, yeah, I teach um, with a dear friend of mine, Max Gallup, who I'm sure won't mind me talking about this, um, a class called Debating International Relations Theory, which we designed as a way to try and have dialogue across, um, uh, I guess, uh, chiefly US-based positivist tradition of IR theorizing and a more European, not exclusively, um, interpretive and critical um, approach to IR theorizing and to try and what we, so we've had lots of interesting conversations about how uh, about how we even have the dialogue, you know, how do you even with students try and talk to them across these two very different um, traditions of thinking about international relations. Um, and uh, it's very hard. And actually what usually happens is we end up having talking kind of in parallel, you know, uh, and having because that's the way in which the disciplines develop these conversations just kind of tend to go on separate tracks and trying to figure out how to say oh you know how would somebody from this perspective or how would this reading that I've recommended from this tradition how would that speak to what you're concerned about and talking about and how would it try and question some of the terms of that yeah it's been a very interesting exercise for me and I suppose just 
to try and pull this back to the kinds of uh, questions that Bridget and Gabriella started off by asking. Um, I don't think I've spent, well, I definitely haven't spent uh, a quarter of the time that Shine has in, involved in trying to influence policymakers or have discussions with policymakers or even really concerned about that. Um, uh, not that I don't think that work is really important because I do, I just, that's not been part of my professional domain because I come from a very different background and I've had different opportunities. Um, I, I've been much more concerned with the how you bring activist discourses and ideas into the academic domain. So I suppose it's been like kind of the other way around. And that's been hard enough. I can't even imagine trying to do it the other way around. But I suppose what I, you know, the starting point of this whole discussion was the, um, um, yeah, I think the terms of the question about how academics should be influencing policymaking is problematic in itself, you know, and I guess Shine and I are both saying that in different ways that we want to sort of push against the parameters of that. Um, you know, I'm interested in radical imagination. I'm interested in um, ethical choices. I'm interested in, um, you know, embodied politics where people um, lie in front of the gates of of nuclear bases um, uh, and all of those and asking questions about those things and listening to the people making those decisions to me is, is just as valid a form of knowledge production as somebody talking to a policymaker. It's a different way of thinking, I suppose, about critical inquiry and also about how change happens. You know, I'm not sure uh, I would hold to the view that um long-term meaningful social transformation happens um only through influencing policy i mean i think that's an important part of it but there are other ways in which we can try and um be part of progressive social change on nuclear political issues um yeah so we need to think about that in a broader way so interesting because that I mean you answered the question I was about to ask before I even asked it <laughs> which was sort of earlier in the conversation you uh you called yourself an interloper and I was going to ask you know sort of how, how do you see that in the sort of work that you do but you just answered it I think so um eloquently so we just wanted to give you also a chance to sort of plug your research network on global nuclear politics as well Oh, uh, well, I've had a wonderful time learning with Shine and from Shine in building this network. Um, so do you want to hear the story about kind of where it came from? Um, because I already mentioned that we, uh, well, it was uh, hinged on the Honolulu International Studies Association meeting and um, I'd put out a call for papers for a, a couple of panels and I really wanted to I guess I was you know working on my own personal um learning about trying to think about learn about literature on nuclear colonialism particularly in the Pacific and I wanted to really um use the fact that ISA was in Honolulu to think about you know an, a, a panel that was embedded in that location and think about the 
Pacific Island region. Um, and so I had a call for panels that a call for papers that basically said we I want to bring together feminist and post-colonial approaches to nuclear politics with this particular focus on the Pacific. Um, and, and compared to when I tried to do this project, um, I mentioned previously in my work with Claire Duncanson sort of a decade and a half ago, and the lack of interest that there was really, lots of people sent me papers. So um, there's something in the air. There's a kind of zeitgeist about this at the moment, and there's definitely uh, much more interest in feminist IR, which was the kind of audience to which we were talking at that point. But there wasn't much work on the Pacific that actually came to, out of that call, and that's partly because of the uh, way in which Pacific voices are marginalised um, or displaced from IR in general, let alone within feminist IR. So then I saw the call for the workshop and I thought, I'm, I'm going to try again and um, made more sort of proactive contact with people that I knew or that were, that they knew other people and kind of gradually kind of trying to build this wider network. And of course that's transformed when Shine came in as well, because she, um, push me to think in much more deeper and more challenging ways about that link between feminism and post-colonialism and how you might, how that might mean questioning your feminism as well as the post-colonial part of it. Um, and really, I mean, and then the Honolulu ISA was cancelled, so it didn't go ahead and um, I, I kind of went into mourning for several months and like many people just coping with the impact of the pandemic on my everyday life so it took a while to kind of realize that we had to move everything online I was very shine was much quicker on the uptake about this than me I think I remember shine you a, a few weeks after ISA saying well we're just going to have to move this online and me saying no no way this will all be over soon um yeah so uh then we rebuilt it online and we had a series of online um, workshops, plural, um, uh, which were, I mean, I found personally uh, a really, really enriching experience. Um, and we now have a really interesting group of people. I think we're going to expand even further now. Um, we're just about to have a second workshop series. So we have uh, many people I can tell you about some of the people in the network, like Claire Slater and Vanessa Griffin, who are like the, in many ways, the foremothers of us who, who are able to tell us about the history of like the movement for a free and independent, a free a nuclear free and independent Pacific, right back from the seventies onward. And um we're really able to help us center our discussions on the Pacific region and, and give us a more historical perspective. Um, we also have scholars who are uh, working in humanities and in uh, literature like um, Rebecca Hogue and uh, Anais Moorer who work on um, anti-nuclear poetry across the Pacific, both in French speaking Pacific Islands and um, in a, a, a the more American sphere of influence, as it's called. Um, uh, and we have people like uh, Christine Hong, 
who has written on the um, the the colonialism across the Pacific and how we need to think about the Pacific region and American influence it in a very different way. So it's a very interdisciplinary grouping. Uh, I've missed out loads of people. Shine can tell us about some more. Um, at the moment, we've just been really talking. Um, we are going to have another um, series of uh, workshops now um, in the upcoming term. And then we're also, Shine and I are also trying to um, work collectively towards a special issue which we're hoping to publish with um, international affairs uh, which brings together just some of these uh, voices and perspectives um, from the network shine is who, who have i missed out and who else do we need to talk about judy Wu, historian asian american studies lots of people yeah. I think what we're learning, I mean, so obviously the network is in the early stages, but already what we're learning is that um, that maybe the deeper questions about nuclear politics are being asked outside of the discipline of international relations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the transdisciplinary conversation is so important, um, as well as the location of the scholars. So um, what you know, a lot of super radical critical questions are being asked by people in the humanities who are based in the North American sort of academia, as well as a different kind of critical questions are asked by um, academics, for example, who are based in Australia or the Pacific, right? So I think location, geog geography matters because it shapes, it has a way of shaping our questions. And the other important thing here is, you know, what the whole, for me, the workshop has uh, this network has been a way for us to push each other to ask better feminist questions early, right? So be more curious, right? Because we are learning more about the kind of questions and histories that people have that is shaping the kind of questions that they have. So it's a much more a, a dialogic space. And then thinking a little bit about, um, you know, how do we, again, how do we shift the dialogue partners? So if my critical questions about, about North Korea and Korean Peninsula and, and security and human rights uh, juncture, right, that shapes the, the, foreign, poli the foreign policy of the West um, to the question of, North, of Korea, then, you know, for me, what has been really important is, you know, what are the questions and issues that arise when, I ask my questions in relation to those who have lived the effects of nuclear testing, right? So the issue of you know, post-colonial nuclear state really shifts, right? The state as a elite political structure shift. So I think that has been important. And then learning from um, the network that actually you cannot, as feminists, we can't ask questions about nuclear politics without asking other questions about politics that are more in some ways more urgent, like health, like democracy, like women's empowerment or domestic violence, because these are the political issues that are at, are at the forefront of the feminist agenda in these locations, right? So, and nuclear and their involvement in, in anti-nuclear uh, politics is, is part of those larger concerns. So you, it's like, we can't compartmentalize um, <laughs> we can't compartmentalize um yeah the questions that we ask 
Yeah, um, I don't know if there's anything more we want to say about the network other than um, uh, it's it's a work in progress. I think we are going to open it up, hopefully, to to because it it was in a way arbitrary or the product of particular time and space when we were trying to create um, a particular workshop in a particular location and that now we're reflecting on how we might open it up to, to new people and new voices. Um, we've also had um, some kind of effort to uh, bridge the worlds of academia and activism or policy making, whatever you want to call them. We've had Ray Aitchison as part of it as well, who I've mentioned earlier, who uh, works for WILF, Women's International League of Peace and Freedom um, in New York and has been pivot pivotal in their work on, on the nuclear ban. Um, and um, uh, Vanessa and Claire are, have one foot outside of academia, well, both feet, I guess, nowadays, outside of academia as well. So, and, and that's something I'd be interested in trying to, to strengthen, which is interesting in the light of what I said earlier about policy, the worlds of policy in academia. But I guess it's not about trying to influence policymaking, it's about trying to learn from people who are activists within and trying to shape um, change in different ways um yeah and it really has what i've also enjoyed is the unexpected character of some of the discussions you know we we try to have very structured workshops but also to allow space for the conversations to develop in quite organic ways which you know was a pretty steep learning curve about on how you do that online and it would probably have been very different if we'd done it in person i don't know but um it also has meant the fact that it's online has allowed us to to carry on, you know, and we're still all in touch with each other. And, and hopefully the the network will um, have further conversations with new people and go in other unexpected directions, because, for example, one of the things we know we want to work on is um, some kind of shared curriculum project. Uh, where we're going to think about how we can share our teaching resources, but more than that, how we might actually teach a course collectively, which will be a very interesting experiment, which is, of course, partly opened up by, again, by the current moment and the way in which we're using technology these days. Um, yeah, so there's we, we have some quite creative ideas, I think, that are emerging. Whether all of them come to fruition is another matter. Um, but hopefully, um, yeah, I think I think uh, watch this space and other interesting things will be emerging. I just saw your message in the chat, Shine. Um, yes, that was our last kind of formal question. So we can move to what we're both thinking about. Do you want to go first, Bridget, or shall I? Um, sure. I can go, and I don't know if my thoughts are going to be very eloquent or coherent, but um, I'm also in this space where I'm coming off the heels of this, um, my program in South Korea, which was five weeks, um, and it was a lot of science and a lot of um, realist theory, and so melding, and I think I got caught in this space 
in South Korea where they were like, you know, realism, liberalism, constructivism, these are really the only politically useful theories for thinking about nuclear politics. Um, that was sort of, and not like explicitly beaten into us, but um, anytime things about like social movements or social considerations and especially um, imperial legacies were brought up, um, it, they were just sort of dismissed. And um, we also attended a conference um, with the university where I, there was only one person that brought up the impact of activism and social movements on um, current nuclear politics. And so I really appreciated something you said, um, Shine, about um, the value of remaining unreasonable and um, sort of sticking to um, these critical perspectives and not not saying because I had I had some of these conversations with other students in the program. It's like, yeah, I can see how these like power. Um, these conversations um, with realism um, sort of being threaded throughout the discussion, how these make a lot of sense. Um, and, but this conversation has shown me that no um, holding the line on incorporating um, these issues on incorporating critical perspectives um, into nuclear politics is needs to remain at like the forefront of um, my research agenda, especially. And not that I was um, veering off, but especially um, with the interactions of some of the professors and lecturers that we had, it felt kind of um, hopeless a little bit in every like mention of um, critical theories and how they can figure into policy making, um, they're really shut down. And so I did leave the program in that perspective, feeling um, a little lost in how to tie uh, my interest in nuclear politics. It felt like I had these two competing interests, um, nuclear politics and really loving um, reading feminist theory and critical theory and post-colonial theory. And I didn't, I felt lost I guess, on how to tie them together again. And now I just, I definitely feel more hope and more urgency um, surrounding my research. So that is where my thoughts are, are sitting right now. That's really exciting to hear, Bridget. I just want to say that. And I really hope that so we see your work develop in creative ways sounds great thank you I think it, is, we have to find other communities as well to support research which may be on issues or in institution institutional locations where you don't have uh, necessarily have validation and support you know there are the other communities do exist um, I mean we've been talking about one today um, and there are others I'm sure where you can get support for that kind of project and there will be definitely audiences that want to, to hear about it. 
I appreciate that so much. And just everything you both have said, I took, I have sticky notes sitting all around me um, with notes that I've taken throughout um, the discussion today. So I just want to thank you again so much. And Gabby, I don't know if you want to share what you're thinking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. So I, I, I wouldn't call myself a nuclear scholar, uh, but I'm definitely security broadly. Um, and I had a similar experience recently where I've been really interested in the role the Arctic plays and how the U.S. imagines itself sort of as this imperial power in the world and how that contrasts with, you know, Russian security culture and how different they are and how we need to ask the question, not just how are we behaving in the Arctic, but what is security and how do we think about security? And I am... Um, went to this workshop that really, it was about great, great power competition. And I thought, yeah, you know, I should go, this will be useful for my research, but it was a very similar experience to Bridget's where it was a US led uh, conference or workshop. And yeah, everyone just talked about realism. They talked about the amount of military arms that they had, very positivist quantitative discussions. And I did my master's in the Netherlands and when I was in that program, we didn't even talk about the mainstream theories that I have in the US. And so when I came to the US to do my PhD, it really took me aback. So I thought, oh, didn't we say those were not useful frameworks to look through and we don't like those anymore? Um, so I know for my first year, I've really been going back and forth on how do I how do I use, I guess, the position that I am in now to talk more about theories that aren't really in our program as much and you know the school that we're in Colorado State I think does a much better job about addressing them than maybe some schools on the east coast and on the west coast and I'm very grateful for that um but I really liked I don't know who said it <laughs> but um both looking outside of IR I think it was you Catherine um as well as you know seeing where you are and making the way that you conduct your life in a personal way to bring forth these ideas of feminism and post-colonialism. And, you know, maybe when I can do more teaching assistant work, using that in developing curriculum and really using any kind of power that I have to talk about that more. So it's been such an interesting discussion. I've really appreciated all of your time and you know, even though the conversation has, it's been so, I really loved how it wasn't very linear. You know, we talked about this, we talked about that, and we had guiding questions, but that really wasn't the way the conversation went. So I uh, just want to say thank you for that as well. Thank you. That was really lovely, such gifts. So really enjoyed this conversation. A nice yeah. meeting. Yes, it was so nice to meet you, meet you both. I know um, just with the future of my research and where I hope it goes, and I hope to apply to PhD programs in a few years where I work on um, nuclear issues still, I hope to definitely still remain in contact with you both. Um, yeah, and it's really, it's the grounds are constantly shifting and grounds shift in non-linear ways. So the moment, you know, like precisely the moment you feel the gatekeeping or, the closing down of what is possible, what is reasonable, actually is the moment where the grounds might be shifting outside that they're trying to reassert, right? So I think in Korean studies in particular, we know the grounds are shifting, are already shifting in so interesting ways. Um, and so I'm happy to connect you to scholars who work um, 
on that, uh, Bridget. And Gabriela really, you know, I think thinking a little bit about, you know, moving, you know, moving in the, the American IR space, like what is, you know, what kind of gifts can you give them um, that otherwise would not be, you know, the, the kind of questions that you might have or the kind of readings that you don't even have to directly cope, but just sort of refract back in. Um, that's such a gift to the US empire that I think, yeah, I'm happy to support you in any way. So thank you. G gifts that they might not necessarily be keen to receive, but nonetheless. That's the nature of gifts. You give it, if the receiver doesn't want it, they can just put it on their you know, fireplace. It's still there. It's still part of their social world. Um, yeah. Thank you both well, so much. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Th and thank you, Gabrielle and Bridget, for the invitation. It's been a really lovely opportunity for Shine and I to have a kind of conversation, I guess, which we perhaps don't have enough uh, and haven't had the opportunity to have enough, as well as to as well as to meet you and for you to meet my dog. Apologies. Um, and, and to learn about your work, which is always uh, good to hear about. So, yeah, thanks to you as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> They were so good. That was one of those conversations where I'm going to be so spaced out the rest of the day because I'm just going to be thinking about this and I'm going to have sticky notes everywhere around me. Like, what about this? What about this? What yeah. about this? So, wow. I they know. were so great. And I, there's a couple things that were said that are really sticking with me. Um, and so, you know, you read this a lot in radical politics about um, leading with love and radical politics, mm -hmm. revolutionary politics, they're all about love. Um, and then I totally, like me personally, I totally agree with that. And I, I see that and that's something I try to incorporate um, in my, my daily life. And then I come into the IR space and it seems like there is, there is none of that. Um, and just the way that Shine was talking about just this, this almost empathetic mm. and like relatively loving approach to, um, incorporating critical perspectives on nuclear issues um, and talking with scholars that may not have the same perspectives as you. I was just, I was very um, struck by that. And that yeah. is definitely a goal I am now setting for myself instead of being like, those damn realists. <laughs> it, yeah, it was interesting. It reminded me I was listening, I was listening to another podcast, like, <laughs> and they were talking about, you know, how a lot of the time in IR, they'll have like some big name, write some article. And then there's like eight different responses. And they'll be like, we chose people, representative people from different like subfields or different approaches. And they're usually really mean. I mean, you know, they're nasty with the way they, cause there's, there's a polite way to disagree with someone with saying like, you know, you are a person, 
you're an individual. We've both been trained in different ways and we have different views of the world and we don't have to talk past one another and say, you're wrong. That's not a valid point because of X, Y, and Z. And yeah, when she was talking about, I was really thinking about those additions and reflecting on the fact that there's, there's no need to have that like way of talking to each other. Cause what does that say with how we think about humans in general and the way that we conceptualize where people matter? 1000%. And that was another thing that I was regularly struck by in um, my program in Korea. There's all this nuclear discourse and they, it's not like the conversation was non-existent, mm-hmm. but um, discussing how like nuclear weapons have a very real impact on like human lives and how, especially for like marginalized communities, um, they have been deadly, whether it's nuclear testing or um, the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, how nuclear weapons are used to threaten mostly non-white states. Like it's, that was really just not as discussed as I felt like it should have been. We're talking about, you know, tactical and, you know, we've had this conversation in other podcasts, but even the language around like tactical yeah. nuclear weapons, still nuclear weapons you know and so just this lack of humanity I felt like was really missing throughout a lot of the lectures and I really loved how they both brought that in to our conversation because that is so important it is it also it also is interesting because when you were talking about your encounter and Shine was saying that um Often, if we try to meet, let's say realists, you know, where they are, like they set the parameters for what is reasonable and is not reasonable. So if you're only in a space like a nuclear security forum, we're not going to talk about people because the only people controlling those spaces are people that don't really think about that in the way that they think about politics and people, which got me thinking like, what spaces should we be using to talk about these issues? Like, you know, activists, like where do activists meet? Where does public discourse happen? Is there a place on the internet where we can do that? Or is that only an in-person thing? Like, I don't know. It just got me really thinking about those. No, me too. And, and you know, I'm kind of kicking myself for um, the way I showed up after I asked that question that I mentioned um, in the interview and, you know, they said, you know, it just really doesn't, it really doesn't show up in policymaking. And I, I think I let intimidation get to me. Um, and I was just like, okay. <laughs> and I didn't push back. And I think they really spoke to the importance of pushing back and holding their feet to the fire in terms of like, well, imperialism is real and that continues to have real consequences. So I I need you to say something about um, the link between nuclear politics and imperialism and not playing the realist game and broadening like the rules and parameters of the game to include 
these other very real reality. <laughs> no, I reality totally feel you. That real similar. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, at the workshop that I was at, um, the research that I was presenting was about like, like we've talked about it, but, um, you know, looking at the institutionalization institutionalization of securitization, like processes to understand like U.S. imperialist tendencies. But like I called it U.S. exceptionalism because I was like, you know, the U.S. has this like pathological need to be be exceptional in every place and every theater. And someone told me, you know, oh, that's a really cynical view of the U.S. And I also didn't say anything. So I was like, well, you know, to each their own to do it especially as like young women scholars because like nuclear field security field dominated by white men and I was going to ask you was that experience coming from like a man or like let alone a white man I wonder what you think I wonder what that uh and I was thinking about how I think my one my age and my gender definitely played into the way I interacted with the professor in the scenario and so I yeah it's I don't know I'm like looking at my notes here (laughs) um what did I want to say it made me think you know if the positionality of where we come from makes such an impact like in our in IR in our particular field I'm sure it's the same outside of IR too, but it just makes me wonder, Catherine said, you know, look, look to outside of IR. And I remember thinking that a lot, like when I was focused on decolonial theory, and it just makes me wonder, are there gathering places where scholars and activists and anyone who has like a stake in policy maybe meet that are more open to that kind of discussion, or if it's just, you know, the broad patriarchy that extends its claws through everything. But I could be wrong. I don't know. (laughs) One final thing that I think sums up not only this podcast, but also the title of our podcast, which I thought was great. Um, Shine or Catherine, someone mentioned, um, you know, you can be deterred when you see really strong gatekeeping behavior, or you can see it as a moment where um, they're feeling very vulnerable uh, because they think, oh gosh, we need to really shore up and put forward all of our um, ways of domination out into the world. And so one might say that it's an opportunity to disrupt uh, forms of hierarchies in politics. (laughs) One might say, I love it. Yeah. (laughs) That's what we're doing here. We're disrupting. That's the goal. (laughs) And thank you so much to Shine and Catherine for mm-hmm. helping us do that and allowing us to share your perspectives and your research on our podcast. Yeah, we will talk to you soon. If you want to um, talk with us, leave us a review, or if you have something that you want to add to the conversation, you can slide into our DMs at DisruptRCP on Twitter. Or you can email us at disruptrcp at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye.